Hey, it's your host, Chrissy Costa, and welcome back to 52 Founders. This week, I'm joined by Avanov Agrawal, the founder and former CEO of Renzu, a platform to track real-time customer data that was acquired by SurveyMonkey. Avanov and I connected after I interviewed his wife, Gary, a few weeks ago. As the son of a diplomat, Avanov is no stranger to new beginnings and is now working towards starting another company. I'm in awe of his fearlessness to dive into new projects and can't wait to see where this one takes him. But for now, let's get started by diving into his interview. much for having me. I look forward to it. Um, so let's get started. And I guess we'll go first with your company. Um, so can you start by telling us a little bit about Renzu and what it does uh, or what it, where it did rather? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So uh, Renzu was started by uh, Arjun and I who were working out together and then joined shortly afterward by Jason Tomlinson, another buddy of ours that worked at Zynga. And Renzu aimed to solve a very simple problem, which is that uh, at Zynga, we had a lot of data about our own customers. So we could tell you how many people were buying pink cows from Missouri and how many of those had spent more than $50 in a month on Farmville and played two other Zynga games. But we didn't have a lot of data about the external market. So we couldn't tell you how many people were playing our competitors' games. We couldn't tell you if people liked our competitors' games more than they liked our games. We couldn't tell you if a new game launched if the D1 retention on that game was really good or bad. And so we kind of had a lot of whiplash because we, we, while we understood our own metrics really well, we didn't understand the context externally for that really. You know, I had a background at, at McKinsey and uh, the big consulting firm, and we're used to this idea of having external data sources. And, and we saw in a lot of other fields, uh, let's say television or magazines and newspapers, that there were companies like Nielsen and Comscore that, provided this type of benchmarking data where you could compare yourself to the competition. So if you had a TV show, you could see the ratings for that TV show, but also see what the ratings were for the other TV shows that uh, you know competed for the same time slot. Uh, and so we wanted to recreate that kind of product for mobile and essentially provide competitive data on mobile. Got it. Um, and so what was the, so that was like the tipping point to make you start, but then when did you guys end up leaving Zinia? Zynga, sorry. Uh, so we left Zynga around uh, June 2014, uh, and then we spent a couple of months as uh, EIRs, entrepreneurs in residence at a venture firm called Social Capital, uh, where Arjun knew one of the principals there, uh, Chamat, who was one of the founders of that firm. And so over the next couple of months, we sort of brainstormed various ideas and decided to pursue this one. And I think the company was officially formed in August 2014. So is that normal? Did you ever think you would be an EIR before, you know, Renzu came about? No, I think, you know, uh, it sort of happened in an accidental way. Arjun and I had been working together uh, at Zynga since 2011. And, you know, we knew each other. We we're really good friends. I, I you know, um, Gary and I, my wife, attended his wedding. Uh, and, you know, at some point we decided, hey, it was sort of time uh, for our next adventure. And Sort of both of us kind of gradually just realized that we both wanted to do startups. Arjun had done another startup before that had been acquired by Zynga music gaming companies. I knew he was somewhat interested in that. Uh, and so we kind of, you know, decided to do something together. We didn't really know what it was. 
And as we were in the process of leaving, this unique opportunity to become uh, an EIR came up and we thought, you know, why not? Sounds like an interesting gig. We'll learn uh, things. We'll get to observe a venture firm uh, from up close. Uh, and they can be useful to us in the brainstorming process as well as we decide what we want to do. Yeah, definitely. And I think, though, you know, do you think working at the venture firm gave you a better idea of what you wanted when you went out to fundraise since it was, you know, your first your first time founder? Yeah, I think, you know, we found a lot of value in being an EIR. They were um, it, w- it wasn't as long uh, or as we thought. So we ended up being EIRs only for two or three months before we. Uh, sort of uh, decided on the idea for Renzo and left to pursue it. But uh, there were a number of uh, insights, sort of insights we got from uh, our time at Social Capital. So one of those was the ability to spend time with the various associates and partners at the venture farm, uh, sort of tossing ideas. So every week, if we'd had an idea, you know, we could, in a very low-key uh, low way, uh, discuss it with them, get their feedback, without it being as formal as a pitch meeting where, you know, you sort of get a yes or no answer and it becomes a big deal. Uh, we were able to get that feedback. So that was really helpful. And and so by the time we came up with the idea for Renzu, uh, we'd already had three or four other ideas, things like receipt scanning to try to understand what people are buying uh, at the supermarket and so forth and, and sort of had a tepid reaction. And so when we told people about the idea for Renzu and, and we saw their reaction, we had something to compare and contrast it to. And all of a sudden, you know, we saw that people were a little bit more excited about that. It made sense to them. The market opportunity was clear. Uh, so so uh, in that facet, it was helpful. And then from the fundraising perspective, you know, we took a pretty unique approach to fundraising where we actually went out uh, to a lot of people in the industry that would be potential customers of this data if we created this. And we actually got them to invest in the company. So we had a number of people that were executives at various companies. And uh, once we did that uh, sort of angel fundraising, we were able to get a couple of venture firms, including Social Capital and Redpoint, interested as well. So I don't think it was necessarily an unfair uh, advantage or learning from being assigned to venture firm, but it was certainly helpful. Yeah, I mean, I also I never would think of it as an unfair advantage. If anything, I think it's it's just you being smart while you're testing product market fit, and um, and you you have to utilize every everything in your arsenal and your founders. So having those connections end up being very helpful. I feel like a lot of founders I've talked to said your network ends up being what makes or breaks you as a founder. You actually look for unfair advantages. You know, I mean, it's sort of more because you don't, you want things that are proprietary. You want to find insights that you have that somebody else hasn't found yet or ways of thinking and approaching a problem. So <laughs> I guess it's a slightly different perspective where I will take unfair advantages all day long. <laughs> yeah, I think maybe we need a new term for that then. Sounds uh, like a more positive way to say. <laughs> That's true. So after, you know, you started Renzu, you raised the initial funding, uh, and then you eventually were acquired by SurveyMonkey. Did you have to raise further rounds between then, um, or did you just kind of go and grow the company and then later go through the acquisition? No, we didn't raise, uh, we only raised a single round. So we ended up raising about $3 million as a seed round, um, roughly split between angel investors and, and professional venture firms. Uh, and about a couple months into that, around sort of January or so, we started discussions with SurveyMonkey and, and the CEO of SurveyMonkey at that time, Dave Goldberg. And even though we had a lot of the money that we had raised from our seed round in the bank, uh, you know, the, the discussions proved fruitful. So we were lucky and kind of had a, a bit of a 
you know, storybook uh, ending to our entrepreneurship journey. And so I'm curious though, as former Zynga employees, and you know, that's where you got the idea from from working there. Did they ever approach you about potentially um, being an, uh, an acquisition for them as well? Uh, no, I think you know, in general, uh, Zynga was a very acquisitive company, but it tended to be much more of a product acquisition company where they would acquire lots of games. So. Uh, one of the products I worked on, Words with Friends, came about through the acquisition of a company called New Toy out of Texas. Similarly, Draw Draw Something, you know, was an acquisition of a company out of uh, New York. The even the original uh, Farmville game that Zynga is really well known for uh, was an acquisition of a small company called My Mini Life. So they did do a lot of acquisitions, but we knew from our time at Zynga that those acquisitions tended to be less about technology and much more about specific games or types of games or genres of games that Zynga was interested in. So, it, you know, we, we didn't necessarily consider it as an option either. Got it. And so um, before we dive into your earlier background, just to finish this out, how did the transition go from, you know, being acquired? You know, how is it going from leading a company to then coming in as a VP? Or did you find anything surprising in that regard? Or was it pretty much what you expected? You know, I'd been uh, at Zynga in a kind of a corporate environment before, so I knew a little bit about what I was getting into. Um, it was, you know, it's always a it's always a tougher time than you think because uh, things change. You know, you're as the CEO of a company and founder, you feel like you have a lot of control. There are a lot of decisions you can make. You know, if you don't like a policy, you can change the policy. Uh, you know, and and the team's also smaller, so we were about a 15 person team, so. You get to know everybody, you know, you know, the marketing person, you know, the engineering person, uh, you know, the person who's making the iOS app and so forth. Whereas in a larger company, by necessity, it's, you know, it's, it's just hard to know everyone. So, uh, you know, you have a little bit of as companies grow, it's harder to know everybody at a more personal level. And that makes uh, things harder. I think the other challenge is uh, policies are different. You know, you're not able to uh, maybe move as fast as you would like because, there are, uh, and sometimes for very good reasons, checks and balances along the way. So, you know, to give a concrete example, at, at Renzu, to uh, hire really fast, we use certain services like Hire.com and other executive recruiters that charged anywhere from 15 to 20% of an engineer's salary. And while steep, it, the cost was worth it to us because you know, we were so focused on moving fast. Whereas SurveyMonkey had a slightly different approach for recruiting. You know, they needed to think about a much larger employee base and if they made, you know, if they paid commissions of that sort for one or two engineers, they may have to do it across the board. So, you know, you just have to be more careful. Uh, and, and those things are, are always um, sort of, you know, you have to adapt to new ways. Um, okay. Well, on, <laughs> on that note, we're going to uh, switch gears and go back to kind of your earlier years. And so as you're familiar from when I talked to Gary, I like to kind of dive in from the beginning. So what was your childhood like? Where are you from? Um, do you have any siblings? You know, things like that. Yeah, so I'm from, uh, I was originally born in Lucknow, which is a small town in India. I guess it's it's small by Indian standards. And so it, although it still has a population of a couple million, uh, it's in the <laughs> same state. It's in North India in the same state where the Taj Mahal is located. So that's, I guess, the claim to fame. Um, and my dad, uh, when I was born, used to work for a bank in India, although he eventually became a diplomat. So uh, I didn't grow up in a particular place as such. 
We used to move every three years. So we spent time in India and in Ghana. I did my high school in South Africa and Panama. Oh, wow. uh, and so sort of, you know, it was a childhood and, and young adulthood spent traveling the world, which you can't, I can't really complain about. Uh, it had its share of challenges, but on the whole, I enjoyed it tremendously. Uh, I'm also the elder of uh, two brothers. So my younger brother uh, is about five and a half years younger than me. Uh, and, you know, he was kind of my closest friend growing up, uh, partially also because we changed places every three years. So, you know, the family was the really one constant across all of these different places. So when did you end up coming to America? So I came to the U.S. for my undergrad. Uh, so after Panama, I uh, decided to apply to a few U.S. schools and was lucky enough to be admitted to Princeton. Uh, and so came in uh, 2000 uh, to to the U.S. And so... I'm curious, where was, where do you find you spent the bulk of your childhood or was it really that you were moving around every few years? Yeah, it really was, you know, on like <laughs> clockwork every three years we moved. I guess the bulk, you could say the bulk of it was India because, you know, I was there from when I was born to about five, five years or so, and then spent another three years between the ages of eight and 11 there. So that from a total time period perspective, that was the majority of the time. Um, but um yeah, it, it, you know, other than that, it, it felt pretty sort of a constant change. Yeah. And and so from India to South Africa to Panama, there's such diverse places. You know, how do you think the different cultures affected you? And did you really get to absorb them as a child? You know, it's a bit of a balance because on one hand, uh, you're living in a country, you're, you know, fully immersed, uh, you're interacting with people. Uh, in that country, uh, you know, you're, since my dad's a diplomat, a lot of his job revolves around meeting people and, you know, whether officials or businessmen in that country. So you get a lot of exposure just from, you know, being, and being a kid, you don't really necessarily think about it that way, but just from your everyday life, you're, uh, you know, when you have people over for dinner or the kinds of conversations you have, or, you know, as your parents are looking for a place, you know, just seeing the different, uh, things around you, you sort of pick them up. On the other hand, you also, as a diplomat, you know, have a little bit of a sheltered life, uh, sort of a cocoon, if you will. You know, I went to schools that, international schools that had other diplomats and, uh, you know, people who work for uh, NGOs or other governmental organizations. So it was also a a sheltered world. And and I was very aware that it was a sheltered and privileged world, but it wasn't uh, necessarily the best cultural experience from that point of view, because you had a lot of other people who were similar to you who were expats who were going to be there for a limited amount of time. Uh, so you don't necessarily pick up the language, the local languages as much as you would. You didn't make as many friends uh, from people who really were from that country as you wish. And even if you did, it, it was sort of a very elite cross-section as opposed to uh, sort of, uh, you know, a normal slice uh, of the country. Yeah. That makes sense. I guess. So since you're traveling so much and you know, um, you may know beforehand that you're only going to be in one place for a few years, were you able to immerse yourself in extracurricular activities or any leadership experiences as a kid? Yeah, uh, I think in one way, it, it really made me much more fearless. And what I learned very quickly was that I could reinvent myself every three years without anyone ever knowing. Now, this was also the days before Facebook and other <laughs> social media history that can chase you down and prove you to be, uh, you know, uh, to be a liar. But uh, I remember very clearly uh, 
you know, I was a bit of a nerd when I lived in South Africa. And when I say a bit of, I, I really mean just fully a nerd. And then when we moved to Panama, you know, I thought to myself, look, nobody in this place knows who I am. Like, they have no idea. I can totally reinvent myself as the cool kid when I come to the school. And, you know, and now I'm not necessarily saying it went over well or I really succeeded in my efforts. But I think just this ability to say, hey, I'm not, um, I'm not constrained by the past is something I learned very quickly, right? I can make mistakes and worst case, the mistake is going to last three years. If everybody in the school hates me, that's okay too. And, you know, three years later, that will change. Or uh, if I mess up in some way, that has the ability to kind of, to have these do-overs where, uh, you know, I always find it uh, very interesting that people who have grown up in the same school or the same town, you know, in one uh, side, it's great because you have these friendships that can last over 12, 15 years. But on the other side, you also get stereotyped or bucketed it, you know, like person, you know, Abhinav is X and Y and Z. And it's really hard to sort of grow out of those. Uh, and I was lucky enough that, that those stereotypes didn't apply to me. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I tried to participate in a lot of extracurricular activities in, in South Africa. I played cricket and rugby. And when I got to Panama, of course, uh, they play neither of those sports. <laughs> and so I... <laughs> I took up soccer and, and or sort of football, as they called it there. And part of it was uh, I was horrible at all of these things. And, and I blame <laughs> the fact that, you know, I, I didn't get so many years to uh, to focus on just one. But the reality is probably just because I wasn't I wasn't good enough at any of them. But, you know, the nice part is I, I felt like uh, I also didn't feel as bad if I wasn't good enough at one thing because I could always say, well, I've only been playing this for one year. So that's my <laughs> So you have the fearlessness, um, clearly self-awareness to keep being so self-deprecating, Alessia, about your athleticism, um, and, and really the ability to march to the beat of your own drum. And now, do you think your parents also were telling you that, that it's okay to be to be a different person and to really to test your boundaries? Or do you think, you know, it's clearly a product of your environment? That's an interesting question. I haven't really spent a lot of time thinking about that, but, you know, my parents were pretty interesting in the sense that they had a very high bar of what they expected. You know, certainly the very typical Asian parents of, an, you know, the A minus is never good enough. And, you know, <laughs> if you get a 99, the question, the first comment isn't, hey, that's awesome, but more like, hey, what'd you mess up that you got <laughs> that one point off, right? Uh, and so, and I don't think they were necessarily very strict or very, um, you know, forceful in the sense of, you need to spend X hours studying or whatnot. But I think you could feel it just from the standards of well, what is expected, you know, uh, that the uh, it just, you didn't want to disappoint them. That was sort of the, uh, the implicit understanding. But at the same time, I think they encouraged us to take up a lot of other extracurricular activities. I think uh, they wanted us to experience new things. I remember uh, my mom in particular, you know, always wanted to make sure that uh, we were participating in all of the different things and learning the local language. So, you know, especially in Panama, uh, we made a lot of effort to learn Spanish, uh, some of which I retain to this day. And so, uh, you know, I don't think it was necessarily the explicit, uh, hey, go out and be fearless, but definitely a, a desire for us to try and experiment and, and try new things. And so I guess then, how did they take it when you told them you wanted to be an entrepreneur and that you were leaving 
Um, you know, this steady career path from McKinsey, then you were a product manager at, uh, what was it, Amazon, I believe. And then mm-hmm. going to, you know, um, then leaving to be an entrepreneur. Were they okay with that? Or were they still saying, you know, I want you to, or were they more traditional in the sense that, you know, the strive for excellence in, say, like a doctor or, you know, or a head of product, for example, at a, at a very successful tech company? Yeah, it was it was a challenge. <laughs> so, and and you know, my dad uh, actually just last year finished uh, thirty years working for the Indian government, and so you know, his life experience and his professional experience of this this one long stretch in a single organization that he's been working, you know, and and uh, growing and rising as part of that organization. So, of course, from his point of view and his worldview, uh, and the kinds of people they. Uh, interacted with and in their social circle, you have these very stable jobs, very long careers. And some of it is uh, a function of generations as well, right? Even in America, uh, the job tenures are getting smaller and smaller. So forget being an entrepreneur. Sometimes they didn't even fully understand, you know, why you would switch a job as frequently as maybe I've done, uh, even though I haven't been all that frequent. But, you know, hey, everything was uh, great at Amazon. Why do you want to leave Amazon to go go to Zynga, let alone being an entrepreneur. So I think that was always a, a challenge uh, for them to necessarily empathize with as much about how much meaning and how much uh, sort of, you know, you, you view your career in very different ways than, than perhaps they did. Uh, and they were certainly taken by surprise on the entrepreneurship decision because from their perspective, you know, I was leaving a pretty comfortable job with uh, great career prospects. You know, I'd been promoted a couple of times at Zynga, uh, and to kind of take something and, and do something that was, of course, and, and remains very risky. And, and uh, you know, I, I think I finally got them over the line, but it, it was definitely a surprise for them. So when did you start thinking about entrepreneurship? You know, one of my favorite questions is to ask people what they wanted to be when they grew up. Although I doubt many children are like, I want to be an entrepreneur. But did you have any <laughs> early entrepreneurial endeavors or did you really start thinking about it when this opportunity came along? Um, so early entrepreneurial efforts, zero, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I would say too busy just playing run. so many sports. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't, uh, I didn't even have the proverbial lemonade stand ever. Right. Uh, yeah. you know, so I, I can't think of anything I did, um, that, uh, actually made money or, uh, anything like that. And I think, uh, my parents are also, again, a, a function of the time and the location, but we didn't have this concept of summer jobs and earning your pocket money or any, anything like that. So uh, the only time I actually uh, first made some money on my own in an entrepreneurial environment was sort of after I'd graduated from uh, high school, but before I went off to college, I built some websites uh, for some local business owners in Panama. And that felt really fun. Uh, you know, I felt like I was my own boss and I could do, I could apply a skill that I had. And I quickly realized, uh, you know, some of the basic uh, sort of facets of business. You know, I, I, I built the first website and, and then realized uh, I'd bid orders of magnitude lower than anybody else, right? Because I was <laughs> valuing my own labor at, at very, very low rates, close to zero. And I kind of learned from that first one to do the next one. And then, you know, I had a maintenance contract on the second or third website. So I started learning about this concept of, you know, how do you extend your revenue cycle and so forth. So, you know, you almost kind of experiment your way through it and, and learn. And of course, 
that all stopped uh, three months later when I went to Princeton and, and most of Princeton, you know, I had a job, but it was mostly sort of campus jobs and nothing entrepreneurial. I think the next uh, time it really kicked in was I had, I had a course at Princeton uh, on entrepreneurship. Uh, you know, we had a professor who uh, had uh, been an entrepreneur before himself and, uh, you know, was uh, very enthusiastic about the uh, possibility and the idea of uh, kids pursuing an entrepreneurial path. But I think even then, you know, it didn't really strike home to me as, okay, this is something I can do. Uh, and this is something I can do like right now, as soon as I graduate. And so I ended up picking, you know, a, a somewhat pretty traditional path of going to work for McKinsey as a, as a consultant. But I, I sort of always had it in the back of my mind of, okay, well, I will do this someday. And, you know, there's always sort of a excuse you make to yourself, uh, or, or maybe it's not excuse, at least justification of why you're not doing it now. Well, I don't know anything about business. I'm a electrical engineering major, let me learn more about the business world or, well, I don't have, you know, I'm on a visa in the U.S., so maybe I'll do it, you know, after I don't need a visa or, well, I don't have any ideas right now, so maybe I'll go to the corporate world and I'll, I'll get some ideas and, and maybe then I'll do it. So I sort of had different versions or maybe combinations and permutations of all of these ideas in my brain. Um, and so, uh, and from McKinsey, you know, one thing led to another, and I went to go get my MBA at Harvard, and that then led to Amazon, and then Zynga, and so kind of it was sort of a thing that I'd not even a dream, but a thing I thought about doing that had kind of been put on the put on hold. And so, uh, to some extent, you know, I, I credit my co-founder Arjun with really reigniting that thought uh, in my brain as well, which is hey, uh, and finding somebody that. I wanted to work with that I got along with really well that we you know shared a similar outlook and that's sort of when it became real of okay well if there's going to be a time in my life when I do it this is a pretty good time. Yeah, I I think that gives me hope as since I'm in business school right now and I always thought entrepreneurship would happen during business school and I end up um there's so many opportunities I end up you know working for a venture firm working for another startup and now it's coming time to graduate it's it's maybe you know it's still in my mind, uh, that it might be a possibility in the future, but it's funny how it ends up uh, kind of running away with you during the time. So now, though, you're working on something new. You left SurveyMonkey. Um, well, two questions. One, can you tell us about it? And two, do you ever think you'll work for anyone else again? You know, I never say never. Uh, I think um, life's too unpredictable <laughs> to be able to say that. There, there's definitely advantages to being an entrepreneur, but I think there aren't... Uh, there are advantages to working in a large company as well. I think some of the change you can impact at a large company uh, is, you know, magnified because you have a lot of resources at your disposal. You have uh, advantages in a market that a small startup doesn't. So, uh, you know, I I don't rule it out. Now, I personally have found it more fun to do the startup thing. And, and like I said, we were very lucky and had a very storybook example of, you know, having an idea, getting it funded, having an acquisition and so forth. So uh, certainly I'm going to try it again uh, in the for now, but uh, I can see myself doing either of those roles and finding ways to be happy in them. And so now, are you comfortable with the fact that you're not really sure what you're doing next? And is that because you've done it once already and you kind of get that ability to be fearless like you were as a kid? I think certainly the fact that we had one successful version under our belt helps a lot. Uh, you know, my wife would still say that 
in this phase where I'm still trying to figure out what that next startup is. I'm not really doing anything. And it's just a <laughs> sort of a crazy life. Of, <laughs> exactly. I'm just taking a big break. But, you know, I, I, think, I think it is a little bit challenging. You know, it, it does feel, um, it, it's, it's nerve wracking to have to try to figure it out. And, you know, you brainstorm, you think about certain ideas, you build certain prototypes or versions of them. And, and uh, most times, uh, you know, nine times out of 10, they don't work out. But, you know, I think I am more comfortable with it. I've sort of put a time box around it. You know, we've sort of said, hey, we're going to give ourselves uh, six to 12 months to try to figure something out. Um, and if we figure something out during that time frame, great. If we don't, then we'll go think about what else to do. Got it. Um, all right. So for the last few minutes, we're going to switch gears um, and do some of my fun questions. So this is a, a new one, but what was the best piece of advice you got as an entrepreneur? The best piece of advice I got was, um, you know, and, and uh, we didn't necessarily always follow it, <laughs> but <laughs> was to... Uh, in retrospect, in retrospect. In retrospect, that's right. You know, I had uh, the folks at Social Capital uh, tell me many, many times over that really a company is nothing more than the sum of the people. So spending all our energy on recruiting and hiring the best people you can find will have the highest return. And and sometimes you get so busy in the day-to-day execution that you don't spend as much time. And and look, recruiting is hard. It's not It's not easy. But the more time you can spend on finding the absolute best people in the world and convincing them um, to join you in your mission, the more successful you can. Uh, and, so, and my last one is, um, if you had a founder to interview, who would you most want to interview? I think I would want to interview uh, Jeff Bezos. And the reason, you know, Jeff Bezos is so fascinating is because he's had a singularity of vision uh, over the last 10, 15 years as he's methodically built Amazon into one of the largest companies in America. You know, even when times were good and uh, and times were bad, you know, I remember a time when people didn't really believe that an online bookstore uh, could survive and thrive. And, and the, for many years, the refrain on Amazon was that the margins were so low that it possibly couldn't survive. I think he had this idea and this vision in his head that he continuously kept executing on. Um, and I would love to just understand, you know, how, how and where he got that and, and what sustains him on a daily basis uh, to continue excelling and, and keep pushing Amazon into so many different industries at the same time. Yeah, I, actually, interesting enough, your uh, wife said the same person. So uh, you guys have I both think, Amazon people who want to interview Jeff Bezos. Yeah. And, you know, I think some of it is we probably enjoyed our time at Amazon. I worked at Amazon Web Services. She was in the Kindle team. And so, you know, we saw uh, and both very interesting, complex businesses. And yet somehow Jeff had the sort of mind share uh, and had built the right team around him to be able to pursue both those and 10 other things at the same time. Yeah. Which is well, just incredible. Uh, thank you so much for being on my show. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you and I really enjoyed it. So thanks for coming Absolutely. Around. Thank you so much for having me. And that's it for this week's episode of 52 Founders. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at 52founders and go to 52founders.com to stay up to date. I'm your host, Chrissy Costa, and I'll see you next week for another episode.